Titus chapter 3, verse 4 through 7. But when the kindness and love of God our Savior toward all men appeared, not by works of righteousness which we have done, but according to his mercy, he saved us through the washing of rebirth, the renewal of the Holy Spirit, whom he poured out on us abundantly through Jesus Christ our Savior, that having been justified by his grace, we should become heirs according to the hope of eternal life. This is one of Paul's very compact, long, run-on sentences that says a lot, and we try to break it down into bite-sized pieces. Rather than trying to swallow the elephant in one whole thing, we're eating the elephant one bite at a time. So we talked about the kindness and love towards mankind appeared and how Jesus died for everybody and offered it to everybody. We talked about how it's not offered based on our works. So he offers salvation not based on anything we do. While we were yet sinners, Christ died for us. But don't confuse the concept that there was nothing he did to offer us grace or nothing we did that he would offer us grace with the fact that there's nothing we need to do to receive grace. Two different things. It's one thing to say there's nothing that we did or need to do in order to be offered grace. That's true. It's another thing to say we don't have to do anything to receive it. You do. We have to have faith. Without faith, it's impossible to please God. Hebrews chapter 11, verse 6. Uh, We have to have faith in order to be saved. So there is a response of faith that we have to have in order to receive salvation. So he offers it to everyone. But we choose whether or not we put our faith in him or not. Because so much of what we believe isn't actually just the evidence, but what we decide to do with the evidence. Okay? You can receive the same evidence about somebody and come to two different conclusions based on what you want to believe. And uh, there's plenty of evidence that Jesus is the Christ, that the Bible's true. There's plenty of reasonable evidence. But still, even if I give you all the evidence, that won't make you believe. You have to decide. And the reason a lot of people reject evidence is because of the consequences of the evidence. Well, if I believe this, then I'm going to have to submit to God. If I believe this, I'm going to have to turn away from this sin or that sin or this sin. And I don't want to turn away from that sin. So I'm going to find reasons to not believe it. uh, Romans talks about people who reject the truth because of their wickedness. And the reason some people reject the plain evidence that to me and you is obvious. They reject it because they don't want to believe it. And if you don't want to believe something, I mean really don't want to believe something, that's a powerful, powerful tool. And um, that's why we have to appeal to people's good consciences, and, we, and that's why the denial of the conscience will lead you to deny truths and down a wrong path. That's why if you don't obey even your own conscience inside of you, you're going to be totally jacked up. Um, we'll talk more about that as we go through Second uh, Timothy. So uh, it's not by our works, but by his mercy that we're saved. And even when we come to him, we can't earn it. Even, the th- even Like faith doesn't earn it. Even when we have faith in him or we confess. I believe Jesus is the Christ, the Son of the living God, unto salvation. It says in Romans 10, you've got to confess. It says, you know, and even when we repent, it, Jesus said in Luke 13, 3, unless you repent, you'll all likewise. We've got to repent to be saved or we're going to perish. 
Uh, we, we need to be baptized. It, it, it says that, we're bapti- that we're, our baptism now saves us also. It says in 1 Peter 3, baptism is part of accepting Christ. But none of that earns salvation. I mean, oh, I know I did all those things wrong, God, and I'm worthy of death and hell, but I paid for it. I got dipped in water. <laughs> it doesn't work that way. Or I paid for it. I believe in you now. All the things that we do in response to receive salvation don't ever earn it. We don't ever, we, none of us can ever go, I'm a, I'm a little bit better than the average person. I'll pat myself on that. We can't do that because we're all sinners and we all deserve to go to hell. And not one of us have been good enough. And even the best of us isn't even close. And, uh, and none of us in here are the best of us. Uh, that was John the Baptist and he still wasn't good enough. So, uh, we, we can't earn it. Now, but what do, how are we saved then? Well, we're saved by the washing of rebirth and renewal of the Holy Spirit. That's what we're saved by. John 3, 3 through 6, Jesus replied, Very tell you, no one can see the kingdom of God unless they are born again. See, you in and of yourself, born of the flesh, born of a woman, conceived by a man, none of you are good enough. Because after you were born, you did wrong things and you made evil choices and you've sinned and now you're sunk. You're under the curse of death. Because like Romans says, we all die because we all have sinned. And the wages of sin is death. We all deserve death because we've all sinned. When, when we were young, and coming of age, we, we committed some sin. We knew it was wrong. We did it anyway. Some lie. Some, we stole. We dishonored our parents. Something. We did something. And when we did that, we became worthy of death. And we deserved death. And then we didn't just do that. We did it again and again and over and over. And like I've told you, we've broke most of the Ten Commandments, every one of us. And if there is a Ten Commandment we didn't break, if we didn't break it literally, we've broke it in our heart. <laughs> Maybe we didn't kill the guy, but we wanted to. <laughs> You know, you all sitting there judging Will Smith, but there's a few people you'd like to smack. You just didn't have the courage he had. <laughs> you know, there's some people you'd like to just gone up and whoo, I mean, that was a smack too. That was the, uh, we, we all sinned. Verily, I tell you, no one can see the kingdom of God unless they're born again. We got to start over. Redo. We got to start fresh because what we've done is going to work. How can someone be born when they're old? Nicodemus asked. Surely they cannot enter a second time into their mother's womb and be born. And Jesus answered, verily I tell you, no one can enter the kingdom of God unless he's born of the water and the spirit. Flesh gives birth to flesh, but spirit gives birth to spirit. You see, we need to have the washing, the rebirth, and the renewal. That's the way Paul words it to Uh, Titus here, we need to have that from the Holy Spirit. When you receive the gift of the Holy Spirit, when you receive that, He comes in and He washes you clean. He renews you, regenerates you. Now, the word for, uh, some of your things will say renewal, uh, not renewal, but um, regeneration or whatever, it, the idea there is literally reborn. 
That's why I put the word rebirth. It's a washing, it's a rebirth, and it's a renewal. Now, that is a washing, rebirth, and renewal of who? Who does it? Who, who does that to you? The Holy Spirit. How, how can he have the ability to do that? Because Jesus died for you and paid for your sins. And so when you put your faith in him and obey the gospel, the Holy Spirit comes into you. Now don't confuse in the Bible the Holy Spirit coming into you and living in you from the Holy Spirit coming upon you. Those are two different things in the Bible. The Holy Spirit came upon Samson and he took the jawbone of a donkey and killed, you know, a thousand Philistines. Or the Holy Spirit came upon David and he sang a psalm. Or, you know, all, all through the Old Testament, the Holy Spirit was coming upon people. The Holy Spirit would come upon them and they would do a miracle. In the New Testament, it happened too. Holy Spirit came upon the apostles and they spoke in tongues. The Holy Spirit came upon them and they preached with boldness. Or the Holy Spirit came upon, the Holy Spirit might come upon people and they have the ability to do something miraculous. That's Old and New Testament. But there's something singular that is only for us Christians. There's something singular that we have, a promise that we have now under the New Covenant that makes it better than the Old Covenant is. And the New Covenant, when we come to Christ, he washes rebirths and renewal and the Holy Spirit comes and lives within us. The Holy Spirit dwells within us. He is with us and lives in us. We become, as Paul said, the temple of the Holy Spirit. The Holy Spirit lives in us. And that's better than the Holy Spirit coming upon you. The Holy Spirit coming upon you, don't get me wrong, that's cool. To do a miracle or heal somebody or, you know, <laughs> take a jawbone and kill a thousand people, that's pretty cool. Uh, but, to have the Spirit of God living in you as the temple of the Holy Spirit, to be washed of every sin you ever did, to be renewed like a newborn baby, innocent as a newborn baby, to have rebirth and renewal, so that Paul writes that outwardly we're wasting away, but inwardly we're renewed day by day. That day by day we're waking up each new day, the mercies of God are new, and you're renewed. You're waking up every morning a new person. Do over, starting fresh. And, and you're a brand new, you're, you're born again and again and again and again. That's a blessing to have in the Holy Spirit. I'm so thankful that the Spirit of God lives within us, aren't you? What a blessing that we have. Now, just as a side note, we're born again when we're born of the Spirit and not of the water. And that's when we receive this washing, this rebirth, this renewal that happens by the Holy Spirit. We're all agreed on that, right? So when do you receive the Holy Spirit according to the Apostle Peter? At your baptism, Acts chapter 2, verse 38. Repent and be baptized, every one of you, in the name of Jesus Christ. What for, Peter? For the forgiveness of your sins, and you will receive the gift of of the Holy Spirit. This promise is for you, for your children, for all who are far off, for all who the Lord our God will call. So everyone who believes in Jesus Christ and is baptized, they receive the Holy Spirit at their baptism. That's where, is that, does that pay for their sins? Their baptism pay for their sins? No. What pays for their sins? The blood of Jesus Christ. Now does baptism symbolize that? Yeah. That's why when you look in Romans chapter 6, verse 3, it says, don't you know that when you, 
All of us have been baptized in Christ. You know, we're baptized into his death. We're buried with him through baptism, raised to new. We're, we died with him. We're buried with him. We're raised with him. We come in contact with the death, burial, and resurrection of Jesus at our baptism. And that's when we're forgiven. That's when our sins are atoned for. And that's when the Holy Spirit, according to Acts 2.38, comes into us. And that's where we receive this washing and renewal. Peter talks about it in 1 Peter chapter 3. He says, baptism which saves you also. Not the removal of dirt from the body. It's not something about your flesh. Not the removal of dirt of your body, but the pledge of a good conscience towards your God. It's something that happens inwardly. And when you are baptized as a Christian, you don't get some outward thing, you know, not some outward washing. It's something that happens inward when you're pledging your life to God in your baptism. And if you're not pledging your life to God in your baptism, you were just doing it because somebody made you or it happened to you before you were even cognizant of anything about God and you were an infant, it doesn't count. Baptism that saves you is the baptism where you're pledging your life to God. And if your baptism wasn't a, I'm pledging, I'm giving my life to Jesus, then it didn't work. Because it's not something, it's not about being physically dipped in water. It's about doing that act of obedience and in your heart, giving your heart to Christ. Because then the Holy Spirit comes in and there's this inward washing and renewal by the Holy Spirit. Then you have the Holy Spirit in you. And I don't want to get baptized uh, be, you know, just as some sacrament. I don't want to get baptized as some work. That doesn't, works don't save you. I want to get baptized out of faith because the Bible told me that if I would be immersed into Christ, that my old person would die and be buried in the waters of baptism and a new person would come out alive. And that's the way everybody understood this verse for thousands of years. Yeah, you got to get 1,600 years into Christianity before anybody thought that unless you're born of the water and the spirit, that the water isn't, that there isn't talking about baptism. You're born of the water and the spirit. How? Because when you're baptized in your water baptism, you receive the gift of the Holy Spirit. And you get that washing, that renewal, that rebirth. And what a blessing to, to give your life to Jesus Christ. To say, I believe Jesus is the Christ, the Son of the living God. To repent of your sins and to be immersed in the water and receive the Holy Spirit. Not the outpouring, not the tongues, not that. That's the miraculous side. That's the Holy Spirit coming upon someone. I'm talking about not the gifts of the Holy Spirit where the Holy Spirit's giving gifts. I'm talking about the gift, singular, of the Holy Spirit where the Holy Spirit himself is the gift given to you by the Father where he comes and lives in you and washes you and renews you and gives you rebirth and renewal. And that Holy Spirit is poured out through Jesus Christ, it says. The Holy Spirit's the one who washes us and renews us, and he's poured out how? Through what Jesus did. Do I get the washing, rebirth, and renewal because of what I did? Because I earned it? I can't, there's nothing I can do to earn it. You think baptism earns salvation? That's ridiculous. You get baptized through your fingers, get that little pickly thing. It's not going to save you any. It's when you are committing yourself to Christ, you're obeying Christ's command to be baptized, and you're giving your life to him when it's an act of faith, then that's when it's this action where the Holy Spirit comes in you. 
And that's where it has power. Look what it says in 1 Corinthians 6. And this is what some of you were. He's talking about all these sins. He said that you guys were sinners, but you were washed. You were sanctified. Sanctified means made holy, set apart. You were justified. Justified means declared innocent. In the name of the Lord Jesus Christ and by the Spirit of our God. How did it happen? By the authority of Jesus Christ and by the Spirit of our God. Now what do we do in the name of Jesus? What do we do in the authority of of the name of Jesus? I baptize you in the name of the Father and the Son and the Holy Spirit. We're baptized in the name of Jesus and we receive the Holy Spirit. We're washed, we are made holy, and we, were, and we were pronounced innocent, justified, declared innocent. You could put that as you were washed, you were made holy, you were declared innocent in the name of the Lord Jesus Christ and by the power of the Spirit of our God. Look at 2 Thessalonians 2.13. But we ought to always to thank God for you, brothers, loved by the Lord, because from the beginning God chose you to be saved. How? through the sanctifying work of the Spirit and through belief in the truth. You see, the sanctifying work of the Spirit. The Holy Spirit sanctifies you. When you don't have the Holy Spirit, you're not holy. You're not sanctified. But when the Spirit of our God comes into you, He washes you. He renews you. He gives you rebirth. He makes you holy. You are a saint. Now I know the Catholic Church teaches that only uh, people who've done three miracles and are, uh, the Pope declares they're a saint or they are, get to be saints, right? Well, in the Bible, every Christian is a saint. Now, I don't know if you guys have ever met the preacher Dick Chambers. You ever had him here? Uh, well, Dick Chambers, he's a funny guy. But I remember when I was a kid, he always used to wear this baseball back in the 80s. He had this baseball cap that said St. Dick on it. Uh, he's a former Catholic, and he always liked to talk to his Catholic friends about how he's a saint. And they're like, you're not a saint. Because <laughs> they knew him when he was young, and he was no saint. Uh, but he, he, that's, that was his point, is that I've become a saint because I'm sanctified. That means made holy. The sanctifying work. And when the Holy Spirit comes in you, you're holy. And that's why we need to remember to guard how we live and to live in a way worthy of Christ. Because when you were baptized into Jesus and you became a Christian and you received the Holy Spirit, you're not just some you know, schmuck on the street anymore. You're not just some plain Jane person. You are a child of God. You have the Holy Spirit in you. You are the temple. You are the living, breathing, walking temple of the Holy Spirit. You are being sanctified by the Holy Spirit. That's why the Bible says, since we live by the Spirit, let us keep in step with the Spirit and walk as the Spirit leads us. If if we're being sanctified by Him, made holy by Him, and if, if He's living in us, then we ought to act like it. We ought to walk like it, talk like it, live like it. And if you're sanctified, though you don't deserve it, then you ought to try to be living this sanctified life. Not just some normal, casual human being following their own base desires and with their stomach as their God. We need to be living above all that. We need to be living this sanctified 
life because the Holy Spirit's been poured out in you through Jesus Christ and through his sacrifice on the cross. The debt was paid. And now when you put your faith in Jesus and you're immersed into him, you're not just a normal person anymore. You are being sanctified by the Holy Spirit. You're holy. You're a saint. So, it says we're justified, that means declared innocent, by Jesus' grace. Um, Romans 3.24, being justified freely by His grace through the redemption that is in Christ Jesus. Galatians 5.4, you've become estranged from Christ. You who attempt to be justified by the law have fallen by gra- from grace. So, justification means to be declared innocent. And when you come to Jesus Christ and his redemption, when you come to put your faith that Jesus died for me on the cross, he was buried and he rose again, and that paid for my salvation, and now he's offering it to me freely. When you believe that and you have faith in that, and you obey the gospel out of faith in that, your faith has, is made alive by your works, and your faith and your works go together like James 2 says, um, it saves you. And you're, you're declared innocent. You're innocent. The Holy Spirit washes you clean and rebirths you and renews you. You're a new person. You're innocent. Everything you've done wrong is forgiven. He became sin for you so that you can become his righteousness. A transfer happened. All of the sin of all history, every murder, every war, every rape, every theft, every evil deed we ever did, was placed upon Jesus and he bore it, he carried it, he atoned for it, he paid for it, he was sacrificed for it, and he covered it. And when we come to Christ in faith, and when we obey the gospel, all the righteousness, all the goodness, all the holiness, all the perfection of Jesus Christ is placed on us. See, as he hung on the cross, my sins, your sins, all sins, put him to death. He became sin, who knew no sin, that we might become the righteousness of God. He took my place so that I could be declared innocent. He was innocent. I was guilty. He took the punishment. He took the weight of my guilt and gave me the glory of his innocence. That's the transfer that happened when I was immersed into Jesus Christ by faith. And through his grace, now did I do anything to deserve that ever? No. Did I do anything to earn that? No, I couldn't. It's by his grace that he offered it. Now, is there something I needed to do to accept it? Yes, I need to do what he said to do to receive it. But did that earn it? No. It's always by grace. If I, if I gave you a check for a million dollars and said, go deposit that and you'll be a millionaire, there's nothing you could do to earn it. But there is something you have to do to receive it. You have to go deposit in your checking account. And when God tells us to receive salvation a certain way, that's not so we can earn it. There's nothing we can do to earn justification. 
if you are declared innocent on the day of judgment, if on the day of judgment you stand before God and he says, this one's innocent, come into my kingdom. If that happens to you, it's by grace. Because there's nothing you could ever do to earn it. Same for me. Same for anyone. Now, if you attempt to be justified by the law of Moses, and you think, well, I'm going to keep the Ten Commandments, or I'm going to keep this dietary law, or I'm going to, if, if, if I get circumcised, then I'll be saved, or if I, if I abstain from bacon, or I don't work on Saturdays, or some other aspect. No. If you try to be saved and justified by any other means than the blood of Jesus Christ, you have fallen from grace. And by the way, I know our reformed theology friends don't believe you can be lost once you're saved, but this verse makes it plain. You can have grace and fall from it. How can the idea that once you're saved, you can never be lost be true if you can fall from grace? Doesn't grace save you? Doesn't grace redeem you? Aren't you does Ephesians not say we're saved by grace? Through faith? So if you fall from grace, you lose salvation. And if you, being redeemed by Christ and coming to his grace and salvation, start thinking you're good enough, well, yeah, Jesus helped me with a little sin in the past there, but now I can operate on my own supreme righteousness because let's face it, I'm better than most others. And you start to think you can do it on your own? You've fallen from grace. If you attempt to earn your salvation, you've fallen from grace. Don't try to earn it. You can't. You have to accept it freely. Now, should we as a Christian do good works? Yeah. Should we repent of our sin? Yeah. But to earn it? No. Well, then why, would we, why do we try to be good? Why do we repent of our sins? Because we're grateful that he died for us. What teaches us to say no to ungodliness? The grace of God teaches us to say no to sinful things. Not the law. And we are justified by the grace of Jesus Christ. And if we justified, then we become heirs. Now I know this is we small print for those on the, so look in your notes for this one, okay? For those of you watching on video, I apologize. You're gonna need to turn in your Bible, dust that thing off, and turn in your Bible to Galatians chapter 3, verse 26. And we're going to read all the way through chapter 4, verse 7. And I want you to remember that when the Bible was written, these chapter and verse divisions weren't there. Men came along years later and put those in. They're not inspired. This is all one flowing thought from the Apostle Paul to the church at Galatia, which was struggling with a problem with some people who thought you had to earn salvation by keeping the law. And so here's what he says. You're all sons of God through faith in Christ Jesus. Hey, that's pretty plain and simple, isn't it? You're all sons of God through faith in Christ Jesus. For as many of you, and the word for there in the Greek, it means on account of. So the word for there means on account of. You could translate that if you wanted correctly. You're all sons of God through faith in Christ Jesus on account of. Or you could translate it as the word because. 
The for means, uh, and the reason is. That's what, that, that's what the word for there is meaning, okay? So let's, let's, let's read it as the word because, just to make it simpler to understand. For you're all sons of God through faith in Christ Jesus, because as many of you who were baptized into Christ have put on Christ. No, wait a second. When does that say I put on Christ? At my baptism. It says, you're a son of God through faith because as many of you as were baptized into Christ put on Christ. When did I put him on? And why does that make me? Makes me a son of God. When did I become a son of God? When I put on Christ. Can you be a son of God or a daughter of God without putting on Christ? No. When do you put on Christ? Paul says, I put him on at my baptism. Hey, that's the same time I received the Holy Spirit and got the washing and the rebirth and renewal. I know, those two things are connected. That's where we're going. Verse 28. There is neither Jew nor Greek. There's neither slave nor free. There's neither male nor female. You are all one in Christ Jesus. See, this is for everybody. This is all-inclusive uh, no-holds-barred situation. If anybody can receive this. And you are Christ, then you are Abraham's seed and heirs according to the promise. See, you're a child of Abraham. When you become a child of God in Christ, you put on Christ, and you belong to Christ, now you're a child of Abraham. You're the real Jew. You're the real child of Abraham. Not of physical descent, but of spiritual descent. Because you might not share the DNA of Abraham, but you share the faith of Abraham. You know, and that's why we all sang that song when we were kids at VBS. Father Abraham had many sons, many sons had father. Remember, it was like the Christian hokey pokey. I am one of them, and so are you. So let's just praise the Lord. Right arm, left arm. Father Abraham, you know, it's like... <clears throat> Anyway, it is catchy. Uh, so now you're Abraham's seed, heirs according to the promise. Now I say that an heir, as long as he is a child, does not differ at all from a slave, though he is a master of all, but under guardians and stewards until the time appointed by the father. And so a child who's an heir might not differ from the slave. He still has to go do work. He still has to obey the father. He still has to do the dishes, do whatever dad says. Kids are basically slaves. So sometimes Kaylee says, did you just have us to do the dishes? I said, no, there's the laundry. There's taking out the trash. There's all kinds of other things. Uh, it doesn't differ at all from a slave, though he's a master of all. The kid's going to own it all someday. But as under guardians and stewards until the appointed time, even so we were children, we were in bondage to the elements of the world. But when the fullness of time had come, God sent forth his son, born of a woman, born under the law, to redeem those under the law that we might receive adoption as sons. And because you are sons, God has sent forth the spirit of his son into your heart who cries out, Abba, Father. Because you became a son of God, what did God do? What did he send to you? His spirit into you. When you became my son, I put my spirit. And what's that spirit cried out? Abba, Father. That's the, that's the word for daddy. Daddy, Father. Therefore, 
You are no longer a slave, but a son. And if a son, then an heir of God through Christ. Now, what's my point? We're justified. We became heirs. That's what Paul writes to Titus. When you were declared forgiven of your sins, then you become an heir, a son. Okay? So think about it. Peter says to the people, he says, what do we do? We, we killed the Messiah, what do we do? He said, repent and be baptized, every one of you in the name of Jesus Christ, and you will receive the forgiveness of your sins, Acts 2.38. So what's the forgiveness of the sins make them? Declared innocent. Now you're justified, and you receive the gift of the Holy Spirit. So when you were baptized into Christ, you were justified, forgiveness of sins, and then become heirs. And according to this, if you become an heir, what does he send into you? The Spirit, the Holy Spirit. So that you can cry out and you can pray to God, Daddy, Father. When do you become a son? You're all sons of God through faith in Christ Jesus. Because as many of you as were baptized into Christ, put on Christ. See, all these verses match together. That how we receive God is we have our faith in Christ. We confess Him as Lord. We repent of our sins. And we're immersed into Jesus Christ. And in so doing, we're justified. Sin paid for. Now I can become a son of God. Now I'm a child of Abraham. Now I'm an heir. And because I'm an heir, he sends in who? The Holy Spirit. Holy Spirit comes in, washes, renews, rebirth, renewal, fills us, and then he starts producing the fruit of the Spirit in our life. That's the process of salvation. And that is being spelled out here to Titus in this condensed little run-on sentence. And when you break it down, you see how he's laying out the gospel salvation. And then it points to the, the, the whole reason for it. That we have the one hope in Christ. Now, we know from Ephesians chapter 4, how many hopes are there? One. <laughs> right? So there's one Lord, one faith, one hope. Right? All those ones, there's seven one things Listed in Ephesians chapter 4, I call them the seven essentials. Um, in fact, uh, in my opinion, that breaks down the seven essential doctrines that you have to have right to be a Christian. Um, but the, the one teachings. And one of them is the one hope. Well, what is the one hope of Christianity? There's not two hopes. Okay? There's just one. A faith and knowledge resting on the hope of eternal life, which God, who does not lie, promised before the beginning of time. So what, are, what is the one hope? We're going to live forever. When's that going to happen? Titus 2.13, while we wait for the blessed hope, the glorious appearing of our great God and Savior Jesus Christ. So a chapter ago, he mentioned the one hope too. He says, it's the appearing of great God and Savior Jesus Christ. That's when we receive eternal life. Now look at Colossians 1.27. To them God has chosen to make known among the Gentiles the glorious riches of the mystery, which is Christ in you, the hope of glory. 
Glory there is referring to being glorified in a new and heavenly body. The hope of glory isn't something you receive here and now. Who, as Paul says in Romans 8, who hopes for what he already has? But we wait for it patiently. The one hope will not be fulfilled until Jesus returns. Paul says in 1 Corinthians chapter 13 at the end of it, these three continue. Faith, hope, and love. And the greatest is love. Why is love the greatest? Because our faith will be made sight when we see Jesus someday. Right now we walk by faith and not by sight. But someday we'll see him. And right now we live for the hope of his return and and when we receive new bodies and get eternal life. But someday he'll come back and we'll get it. That's why love's the greatest. Why? Because love is the eternal one. Faith, hope, and love continue for now until Jesus returns. But the eternal one, the greatest one, is love because it's forever. But we have this one hope. Everlasting life at the return of Jesus Christ. These are just three verses I give for this. You can look it up. You can get out your little, uh, you get out your little scripture search thing and type in hope and look at everywhere the Bible talks about hope and what our hope is. And it's always talking about the return of Jesus, our resurrected bodies, and eternal life. That's the one hope of Christianity. The one hope of Christianity is we're going to live forever when Jesus comes back and gives us new bodies. It's going to happen at the return of Jesus. So that's our one hope. So basically, in that little verse, Paul broke down the gospel that we need rebirth, we need renewal, we need justification, and we need to be sanctified. And all of that so that we can have the hope of eternal life in Christ Jesus. Because right now, inwardly, we're saved. But outwardly, we waste away. That's what Paul said in Corinthians, right? So, someday though, he's going to come back and give us new bodies. And the part of our body now that's wasting away, you know, that turns 50 and gets sick all the time, uh, or whatever, uh, that is going to be replaced. And these old, decrepit, worn-out shells that we've ruined with sin, he's going to renew that. And even death is going to be swallowed up in victory. Even death itself will be triumphed over. And those who have died in Christ, well, they're going to come back to life. And the dead will rise again. And the grave will cough up its victims. And uh, um, that's why Jesus said, if you believe in him, even though you die, yet shall you live. Faith in Jesus Christ is the difference. And that's the gospel we preach. Okay, trustworthy saying number four. Remember, we're having a series of trustworthy sayings. This is trustworthy saying number four. Titus 3.8. This is a trustworthy saying, and these things I want you to affirm constantly, that those who have believed in God should be careful to maintain good works. These things are good and profitable to men. Okay, so... Trustworthy saying number four is, hey, if you're one of these people who believes in God, who's sanctified, washed, renewed, justified, and has the hope of eternal life, then you should be careful to maintain good works. Why? Because that's good and that's profitable to men. Um, He affirms it constantly. He says, I want you to say it again and again. It needs to be repeated. 
Sometimes if we want to emphasize something so it won't be forgotten, we'll repeat it. Sometimes if we want to emphasize something so it won't be forgotten, we'll repeat it. 2 Peter 1, 12-13, For this reason, I will not neglect to remind you always of these things, though you know and are established in the present truth. Yes, I think it's right, as long as I'm in this tent, to stir you up by reminding you. Preachers, part of your job is to remind. And that is what Paul is telling Titus. Well, I don't want to preach on that again. I've already preached on it. Preach on it again. No, not you don't got to do it every week. Come on, but uh, you know, but there's some things that should be preached on regularly. Build your sermon schedule around some things being preached on every year. Uh, Jesus talked about money a lot. You better. There's a reason he did. Jesus talked about hell a lot. You better. Uh, Jesus talked about marriage a lot. You probably ought to cover that. You know. There's some things that, are, that you're going to need to regularly go back to. What the gospel is, now you better cover that every week. That's the whole point of coming together. That's the whole point of communion, is we proclaim the Lord's death until He comes. There, the, God forbid that a week would ever pass where nobody ever tells the gospel at Liberty Christian Church. God forbid that you ever go through communion and have a communion meditation where people didn't go away understanding the basic gospel story. God forbid that, that a church ever stops regularly declaring the gospel. That basic gospel message, it needs to be told over and over and over and over. Uh, one of the things I used to do, when I, well, I still do it, uh, the, when, I, when I was regularly preaching at a church is every November I would cover stewardship and giving. I didn't want people to say, that preacher's always talking about money. I didn't want that criticism. So I purposely would not talk about money most of the time. But it needs to be talked about. So I made sure that at least one month out of the year or one time out of the year it was getting covered. Because it needs to be addressed. You're regularly getting in new people. They're not going to know about stewardship or about giving. It needs to be taught on again. It's something you need to regularly cover. I would regularly do a series on family. On husbands, wives, parents, kids. On responsibilities to family. I would regularly do, uh, uh, be talking about the resurrection of Jesus Christ and the gospel. You know, when Resurrection Sunday would come around, you think that's what I'm not talking about? You think on Mother's Day I'm not talking about family issues? You know? There's certain times of the year I would just cover stuff. And I was going to cover those things because there are some things you need to be reminded of. Look at 2 Peter 1.15. I will be careful to ensure that you always have a reminder of these things after my uh, decease. Uh, you know, like well, After I'm dead, I want you to always remember this stuff. And then look at 2 Peter 3.1. Uh, beloved, I write this to you a second epistle in both which I stir you up to your pure minds by way of reminder. Um, <laughs> I, I did a whole thing on, um, on first, second Peter, uh, a, uh, a class at Summit. 
And it was called Reminder. Because the whole point, I believe, of Peter's epistles are to remind them of some core things so that after he was dead, they would remember them. And so I, I put on the cover of the notes, I put re, and I put a picture of a, of a brain, and then er, to, to be reminder. And I gave it to the kids, and I'll never forget one of my students goes, what's rebrainer? And I'm like, that would be reminder. Uh, so maybe you need a rebrainer. I don't know. But we, there are certain things that, a, that Paul is telling Titus here, cover this again and again. Believers should be careful to maintain good works, it says. We should be careful. Look at 1 Timothy 4.6. If you instruct the brethren in these things, you should be a good minister of Jesus Christ, nourished in the words of the faith and good doctrine which you have carefully, carefully followed. Don't be casual in your following of God's Word. Be careful. Meticulous. Every time I do a study like this, I learned a ton that I didn't understand when I did Ezekiel. In this, I've taught you know, on these things before. I've never taught this at a college level. I've gone back and I've learned things. I've found places where I had incorrect understanding. I've grown my understanding. I've noticed things I didn't notice before. And the more detailed and careful you are in the study of God's Word, the more you can adequately follow it and understand it. A careful, systematic study and approach to God's Word. Not a flippant, oh, well, whatever the pastor says is good. No. Dig deeper and find, because your pastor can be wrong. I can be wrong. There are times I'm wrong. Um, there's some stuff in this I didn't understand. We'll talk more about it in 2 Timothy. That I've had to, well, I was wrong about that. And because when you go back and you look carefully at stuff, sometimes you go, oh, my mis- my, I, was mis- I misunderstood that. Be careful. But you have carefully followed my doctrine, manner of life, and purpose, faith, long-suffering, love. Notice, careful. Believers should be careful to maintain good works. We talked about earlier in uh, Timothy that we want to follow his life and doctrine because in so doing we'll save ourselves and our hearers. We want to not just be careful in what we believe. We want to be careful to live it out. And one of the things I've seen sometimes in Christian churches, and I'm not trying to be mean or offend anybody, but one of the things I've seen in Christian churches is we'll be really careful and parse our sentences and everything about some certain doctrines that are pet doctrines. We'll be, we'll be in detail about baptism or the Lord's Supper or something, and we wouldn't dare compromise on it and we'll, you know, but then we'll not be sharing the gospel with people. Or not be living the way Christ. We'll be totally hypocritical. Where we're careful about one thing and then loosey-goosey about something else. And we need to not just be careful that our doctrine is right or our traditions on Sunday morning are correct or how we immerse someone is the biblical way. We need to make sure that we're living it. 
that we're maintaining good works. That since we are sanctified by the Holy Spirit, that we are keeping in step with the Spirit. Believers should maintain good works. Look at Titus 1.16. They profess to know God, but in works they deny Him, being abominable, disobedient, and disqualified for every good work. See, just professing to know Jesus isn't enough. Remember, Jesus talked about the people on the Day of Judgment who will say, but, but God, we cast out demons in your name and uh, you know, we, did, you know, we did miracles. And he'll say, depart from me, I never knew you. Evidently their miracles were fake. And their speaking in tongues wasn't real. They imagined it. Because he never knew them. There are people who profess but don't live it. They deny him with their actions. And what I'm saying is, is it's possible to deny Christ with your actions. Because being a believer in Christ doesn't mean you mentally accept his existence. It means you actually follow him. You know, like, do I believe that Putin exists? Yes, I believe that Vladimir Putin is the president of Russia. Do I believe in Putin? No, I'm not a follower. When come to think of it, I'm, I don't believe in Joe Biden either. Uh, those are not two men that I trust and believe in. Do I believe they exist? Yes. Am I a believer in them? No. No, I do not. And it is one thing to profess to know God. It's another thing to know God. And with your actions, you can deny Him. Some people are vocal theists and lifestyle atheists. You can deny Him without words by your action. Look at Titus 2.7. In all things, showing yourself in a pattern of good works. In doctrine, showing integrity, reverence, and incorruptibility. See, notice there's a pattern of speech here in Titus. There was a problem, evidently, in Crete, with people not living out their faith and maintaining good works. In fact, Paul tells them to sharply rebuke them because they were lazy and... <laughs> Uh, slothful and some different uh, attributes that weren't uh, very complimentary. And they had a, a works problem in the Cretan churches. And so Paul is emphasizing to, t to Titus, tell them to watch their life. He says here, you can deny him with your actions. He says here, uh, in all things showing yourself to be a pattern of good works. Set an example of good works. In Titus 2.14, who gave himself for us that we might redeem us from all the lawless deeds and purify for himself his own special people, zealous for good works. When a person has been washed, renewed, and redeemed by the Holy Spirit, what did he redeem us from? Every lawless deed. And that's not just talking about he redeemed us from the adultery and the fornication and the drug addictions of our past. He's saying he wants to redeem us from that in our future. He doesn't want to just pay for the guilt of the times you were a liar, a thief, and a 
covetous person or a greedy person or a lazy person or uh, a, a mean person or a violent person or a sexually immoral person. He doesn't want to just pay for your past. He wants to redeem you from it, buy you back from slavery to it. He wants to set you free from it. He wants to change your works. He doesn't just want to cover the sin where you got drunk. He wants you to teach you to live without getting drunk. He wants to redeem, buy you back from slavery to that sin. That's what redeem means. It means, it means to pay the penalty. That you're, you're a slave to that sin. It's gotcha. And he wants to set you free. Jesus doesn't want to just forgive you from your porn addiction. He wants to set you free from your porn addiction. Jesus doesn't just want to forgive you for your gossip. He wants to teach you to not have that kind of malice in your heart coming out your mouth. He doesn't want to just redeem you from violence. He wants to make it so that if somebody insults you, you don't go up and smack them. He wants to set you free so that you're zealous to do good. He doesn't just want to save you from guilt. He wants to save you from your addiction to sin. He wants to take you from a person who loves to do the right thing, who finds joy and happiness from doing good with a desire to forgive, with a longing to show compassion, with a love to help the helpless with a heart for the hurting and the broken, to be a person and an agent of his goodness and his grace and his love. He wants you to be a person to do good works. So be careful to maintain that. Make that who you are. Our works are profitable. When we do good, it's profitable. Sometimes we feel What's the use? Oh, what's the use? Now, I think of the situation in Ukraine. When Russia attacked, all these people in Ukraine were fighting. And, and I, I got to admit to myself, I said, what's the use? They're sacrificing themselves. And the overwhelming power and force of the Russian army is going to quickly decimate the poor Ukrainians. They're sacrificing themselves for nothing. Turns out I was wrong. Turns out that God had something else in mind. And the circum that's not how it's played out. And sometimes when we're doing good, it seems like there's so much evil around us. We're trying to do good, but then there's these people in the church going behind messing up everything we've done. We're trying to do good, but our spouse goes behind us and messes it up. We try to raise our kids right, but our kids are going around messing it up. We're trying to teach our kids, and then they go to school, and the school teaches them just the opposite or worse. And it just seems like sometimes we're fighting against this overwhelming tide of evil that we could never overcome. And it seems like victory would be impossible. And the odds are stacked against us. And why am I bothering to go to this church and try to help this church? That church is, they're not doing nothing. Why am I teaching this Sunday school class? Why am I giving this money? Why am I making these sacrifices? 
And certainly those in ministry feel that way sometimes. But we should never forget all good work is profitable. And every seed we plant will produce a harvest in time. Might not be as fast or as quick as we want. And we might plant when it's fall time the seed of a tree and it might not grow the flower might not the bulb that we plant might not come up till next spring or the corn that we plant in the spring might not be harvestable till fall it might take a couple seasons of life before what we did takes root and produces fruit but it will every good deed that you do will be rewarded in time it will make a difference in time. You are not fighting against unbeatable odds. Not when you're doing God's will. For boldly exercise profits, bodily exercise, excuse me, profits little. But godliness is profitable for all things, having promise for this life that is now and that's which to come. What's awesome about being godly is you're not just profiting now. You're profiting for the life to come. If you don't get drunk now, there's some short-term physical profit for that. But ultimately, you still die. And maybe you miss out on a good buzz and some fun with some people at a party. But what's your eternal profit for not being a drunk? Not just you don't have liver failure. Not you just, I didn't kill some brain cells. Not just I didn't lose self-control and get pregnant one night out of wedlock because I was plastered out of my mind and had sex with some guy I didn't know. Not just those kind of benefits, but the eternal spiritual benefits of heaven for not being a drunkard. There's eternal spiritual benefits to being righteous. And even if what you do here doesn't ever bring you any benefit here, don't look at just here. Your life on this earth is but a wee fracture of your entire existence. The real profit you want isn't here anyway. If you do something nice for someone, give a poor person some money, God will probably reward you. If you're blessed... He might give you back some money and refresh you when you need it. If you're really blessed, though, he won't give it back to you here where you'll just lose it again. If you're really, really, really blessed by God and you gave it so that no one knew and you gave it with a pure heart, he probably won't bless you for it here. He'll probably wait till heaven and reward you for it where the reward you receive there is eternal and you never lose it. If I get rewarded now with money, I won't keep it. If I'm rewarded with uh, a, a, a possession, I won't keep it. But if I'm rewarded in heaven, I'll never lose it. And godliness has eternal rewards. Physical exercise that I do when I go to the gym, that has some short-term minor help. That'll maybe extend my life 5, 10, 15 years and improve my life and my enjoyment while I'm here for the next 
however long God has me here. There is some benefit to physical exercise. That's why I do it. But the real benefit is to be godly. The real things. Don't just work out physically every day. Don't just eat right and eat healthy physically. Yeah, that has some short-term benefits. But really, the godliness and the holiness, this, the prayer life, your, 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 your study of Scripture, your, your, your fasting and your meditation on God's Word and your service to others and your dedication and your giving, the spiritual things that you do, spiritually working out your faith, that's where you really gain some strength that can't be lost. You get some health that's eternal. Matthew 5.16 Let your light so shine before men that they may see your good works and glorify your Father in heaven. The other reason is it's not just profitable to you to do good works. It's profitable to others. Because when they see your good works, that inspires them to love God and appreciate God. And to be thankful to God. I've had some times where I needed some money and somebody gave me some money. I've had some times when I needed encouragement and somebody gave me encouragement. I've had some times when I needed prayer and somebody gave me prayer. I've had times where I needed, I needed some things and God sent people into my life to bless me with those things. And when they did that, it was an absolute gift from God it, that I rejoiced and praised God because of them. There's profit to doing good. Uh, Titus 3.9 Avoid foolish disputes and genealogies. Okay, we're going to... We're going to avoid some stuff. What are we going to avoid? What's, this is a, now, this is a good instruction for all of us, but this is specifically written by who? Paul. And who's he writing to? Titus, a preacher. So if this advice is for anybody, this is for preachers. Avoid foolish disputes, genealogies, contentions, and strivings about the law for the unprofitable and useless. Yeah, but what about on Facebook? Yeah, even on Facebook. Reject a divisive man after the first and second admonition. Knowing that such a person is warped and sinning, being self-condemned. So, there's some stuff to avoid. Number one, foolish disputes and genealogies. Uh, this is similar in Titus of what we see Paul telling Timothy. We see in 2 Timothy 2.23, have nothing to do with foolish, ignorant controversies. You know, they breed quarrels. If it's divisive and it's not the gospel, don't be involved. Don't be involved in divisive things that separate people, that divide churches, that cause... That's not your realm. That's not your calling. That's not what Jesus wants you to do. We are called to contend for the faith but not to be contentious. Some people like, and, and these guys a lot of times end up in the ministry for whatever reason, they like to argue. Kind of the same way that uh, some people that are, seem to be on power trips uh, end up as police officers. 
somehow people who like to argue end up as, uh, you know, preachers. You really, they should have really went to law school and become a politician. Uh, they should have went to work for Fox News or something where they could sit on there all day and, and cause controversy. Uh, a preacher's place is not to be arguing over stupid stuff. That is not your realm. Don't go there. Avoid disputes and genealogies. Look at 1 Timothy 1.4. Devoted themselves to myths, to endless genealogies. Such things provoke controversial speculations rather than advancing God's work, which is by faith. We need to be focused on God's work. We need to be focused on the core faith. We need to be focused on spreading the gospel. We need to be focused on building people and building foundations, not speculations. If it's not a plain and black and white, thus saith the Lord, important doctrine, and you have to do speculating to come to your belief, don't argue about it. That is not a hill worth dying on. There are hills worth dying on. There are things in the church that's worth fighting over. But it's not about disputes or controversies or genealogies or the silliness that we end up... Isn't it funny how the Bible already predicts and then it comes to pass that the things we argue and fight over are the silly things? The, 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 the first and second opinions verses. Not the thus saith the Lord. And don't be involved. Avoid contentious striving about the law. If you've got some crackhead who's just insisting you've got to keep the Sabbath or you gotta, can't eat bacon or whatever, don't waste your time on them. There's some things just not, if they're that dumb, you can't help them. If you can show them the verses that say it plain and they won't follow, you know. There's some people that uh, you just don't bother. And if there are people who, that they like to contentiously strive about the law of Moses, that's not something you need to be involved in. Not devoting themselves to Jewish myths and the commands of people who turn away from the truth. See, there's a bunch of myths and mysticism involved with, uh, with Judaism at that time. And it evolved into a false religion called Gnosticism. And what Paul is saying here is don't go there. 1 Timothy 1.7 They want to be teachers of the law, but they don't know what they're talking about or what they so confidently affirm. Some people who are stuck on obeying the law of Moses, if you can show them Galatians and that doesn't convince them, wash your hands of it. Because you're not going to convince them. Don't be involved in anything that's unprofitable and useless. You have to look at it and say, is it, just, is it something I'm just not supposed to talk about? But also, if I win this argument... If I go to all this effort and I actually win, have I actually accomplished anything? There's sometimes you win an argument, but you didn't win anybody to Christ. You've spun your wheels and spent all your energy on a battle not worth fighting. You know? There's some things that aren't worth fighting. Um, look at 2 Timothy 2.14. Remind them of these things. Charge them before God not to quarrel about words which does no good but only ruins the hearers. There's some things which it does no good. 
and it only ruins people. There was a guy going around uh, claiming that a person could be perfect and that we could be perfect here on earth and he wanted to debate dad about it. And dad's like, no, I won't debate you. I've, I've debated you in written form. You can print what I've wrote. I'm going to print what you wrote me. <laughs> but I'm not going to have a debate with you. And he's like, what are you, chicken? He's like, no. I just don't think that you're worth debating. I don't think that there's going to be enough people who are going to listen to you. And if I did have a debate with you, the only risk I could have is spreading your stupidity further. I'm not going to spread it around. I don't think, and he's, Kip says, you're, you're just chicken. You're just scared and all this. And, and dad said, you're not going to convince me you're perfect when you're appealing to my flesh and my pride to try to get me to have a debate with you. You're not going to convince me you're perfect when you're making appeals to the flesh, not the spirit, to have this debate. And uh, it's just silliness. Some people are not worth arguing with. There's a verse that says, answer a fool according to his folly, lest he become wise in his own eyes. But there's a verse right next to it that says, do not answer a fool according to his folly, lest you become like him. And there's some people that their arguments are so pathetic that their whole controversy is so pathetic that even if you win, you lose. You know? Don't get down in the mud and wrestle with somebody, you know, and worth winning. 1 Timothy 4.7, have nothing to do with... Now, reverent, silly myths, rather train yourselves for godliness. See, we need to be training ourselves and others around us to become godly people. We need to be focusing on building a foundation of strength and hope and truth and love. We need to be focusing on those things instead of winning every argument. I could go around and challenge a bunch of uh, non-instrumentalists to a debate on the instrument and win. But what, what good have I done? Even when I win, I haven't won. I'm not going to debate about some non-salvation issue when there's too many salvation issues that need dealt with. I got too many people in my church that are struggling day in and day out to walk the Christian life that need encouragement and strengthened and built up from God's word for me to waste my time arguing with somebody about whether or not we should have a piano in the auditorium. I'm not wasting my time. If somebody comes to me and they wants to talk about it and they're sincere, I'll talk to them about it. But I'm not going to go around and spend my life debating it. Nonsense. It, is it profitable? Not just is it something that we should be talking about. Is it the best thing we can do with our time? What's the most profitable thing you can do for your church and for the congregants you serve? What's the best thing you can do to build up and strengthen the kingdom of God? And it's not arguing about stupid stuff. And just as a side note, this plays over to every other relationship of your life. And she's like, well, I'm not a preacher. Okay, fine. But you're a Christian. You don't debate them either. Or how about this? What about in your marriage? What if you didn't argue with your husband and your wife about every little stupid thing? And you actually talked about important things and the spiritual things and built up your relationship and developed a close relationship instead of arguing over the little stupid stuff you disagree on. I think you should squeeze the toothpaste from the bottom. I think the top. I think the toilet paper should go underneath. I think the toilet paper should come down on top. I don't know why we're having marriage trouble. We just don't feel as close anymore. <laughs> 
What if with our kids we weren't doing that? What if with our kids we were spending the time building our kids up, giving them a foundation in our faith and building a relationship with them uh, of love and, and what if we were encouraging them and building them up in the core issues of the faith instead of picking at them about little stuff that really doesn't matter? What if we spent more time teaching them to love and respect God and us and building that relationship with God so that they wanted to do good rather than nagging them because you left that clothes on the floor again. Think about it. I'm not saying that every little thing you... Sh- I'm just saying... Pick your battles in life. That's the lesson here. Pick your battles. But, you know, there's some things with kids you do need to take a stand on, okay? You know, don't be letting them listen to Justin Bieber. That's not acceptable. Uh, three strikes in your... I guess they don't probably anymore. He's probably so old now. I'm so old that... I don't know if Justin Bieber's even popular anymore. Uh, yes. Sadly... Romans 16, 17. Three strikes, you're out. It says there, warn a man once, warn him a second time, after that have nothing to do with him. Um, God put in a three strikes, you're out rule. Okay, you were contentious once, you can't be doing that anymore. Okay, you were contentious again, we warned you about that once. You do that again, you're done. Those conversations need to be had. And if you're not willing to have those conversations with people in your church, do not become a preacher and do not become an elder. Because if a person is a contentious person and you let them stick around, they will destroy your... No, no. Not your. They will destroy Christ's church. Out goes the... the, a contentious person, Proverbs says, and out goes wrangling and strife. Sometimes the, the division is not over doctrine, it's not over personality, it's not over the leaders, it's one contentious jerk who has the ear of some people in the church and is good at dividing. And if you talk to them and tell them to cut it out and you tell them twice, they don't listen, get rid of them. And if they take some people with them, audios. I had a dude like that in my first church and he was contentious and I finally called him out and he got mad and he left and 18 people left uh, total with him and 17 other people, some of them were kids, but basically people that were relatives, they got mad and they left. And our offerings went down $15 a week. They were big givers. And I'm not kidding you, the very next week we baptized 16 people. And by I say we baptize 16 people, I'm not talking about me. I didn't baptize them. The people in church baptized them. I remember going out Sunday night. I was handing out baptismal certificates and they were lined. I still got a picture of it. They're lined all the way across the front of our little building. Oh, a building only held 98 people. We had 16 new members. I mean, as soon as those people were gone, poof, we grew. We had to go to two services. Getting rid of them was the best thing I ever did for that church. Because I just wasn't going to put up with it. He was a constant source of trouble. And out he went. And you remove the contentious person, out goes wrangling and strife. You got some peace. You can grow. And preachers, this isn't a suggestion. And if you don't got the guts to do it, resign. 
and let them hire some man who's a man who will get rid of the contentious person. We, we'll hold to Acts 2.38, but will we hold to that verse? But it's the elder's son, and he's related to half the church. There are hills worth dying on. That's one of them. Um, these people are warped and self-condemned. They're warped in their thinking and their conscience, and so they're self-condemned. Look what it says in Romans. Furthermore, just as they did not think it worthwhile to retain the knowledge of God, so God gave them over to a depraved mind that they should do what ought not, what ought not to be done. When you rebel against God and you go against what you know God wants, it warps your mind. You cannot think straight. When a person turns away from God's will and does not follow their conscience, they do what they know they should not do. It warps their conscience and their mind and makes it unable for them to reason properly. When you won't even listen to your own conscience, you're beyond help. See, the way God appeals to us is through our conscience. And by our mind, changing our mind, and then when our mind sees what's true, if we're following our conscience, we do it, right? So, let's say that uh, Jake was, I believe he is, a good-hearted, uh, honest Christian. And let's say he thought that you didn't have to tithe. And then I sat down with the scriptures and I convinced him tithing is something for Christians he needs to do. Now since he's a good-hearted, sincere Christian, what's Jake, hypothetical Jake, going to do? He's going to start tithing, right? But if Jake is not a sincere person following his conscience, and he's not honest with himself, and he's a person trapped in self-deceit, following evil desire with an unrepentant heart and I show him what the scripture says is he going to do it no see before you can follow God's word you have to follow that divine spark of conscience within you in fact what will lead you to the truth about God's word is following your conscience when you are not true to yourself you can't be true to God. It warps your mind and your thinking. And what sets a person back on the right path, like Cornelius, remember Cornelius in the Bible? He didn't know anything about Christ or about God, or, but he, he heard about the one true God from the Jews and he saw the truth about the one true God and he read their scriptures and he didn't know what to do other than what he'd heard already. So he started helping the poor and he started believing in God and trying to follow this God that he'd, he'd learned about from the Jews. Now, he didn't know how to be a good Christian or to follow God, but he did that, and he followed his conscience. So what did that do? That went up before God like a fragrant offering, the New Testament says. And God says, oh, look at this guy. He's all wrong. He's a sinner. He's off base, doesn't have faith in Christ. He's lost. But he's trying. 
I'm going to send him somebody. So he sends an angel down to him. Cornelius, <laughs> there's this guy named Peter. It's the house of Simon the Tanner. Okay. Send some of your guys. Okay. And so he goes and gets him. Peter shows up. He says, an angel came to me, told me to go get you. Peter says, well, I was just having a vision up on the roof, told me that you were coming. Here's the gospel. And he lays it out. And he obeys the gospel. He gets saved. He followed his conscience. There was an Ethiopian. He knew about the one true God because the Ethiopians, since all the way back to the time of Solomon, had been coming to Jerusalem to learn about and worship the one true God. And Cadence was a descendant of a woman who had come and, and heard Solomon's wisdom. And so he was a guy that took care of the, the money for her. He'd heard about the one true God. He went to Jerusalem to learn about him. But the Jews didn't care about him. He was some black guy. They didn't care about some black guy. He's riding back home in his chariot, reading the Hebrew scriptures that he got a copy of, and didn't understand it. And God says, look at this guy, trying to learn about me, reading about my Messiah. He's not even a Jew. He cares more about me than the, all the Pharisees in Jerusalem. I know what I'm going to do. Philip, over here. Yes, Lord. <laughs> Which one? <laughs> and he's up there reading from Isaiah the prophet. Right out of the verses about Jesus in Isaiah 53. Talking about the crucifixion. Do you understand what you're reading? How can I unless someone explains it to me? Well, I'll teach you. Well, get up here. And he explains the gospel to him. And he's so excited. He says, they come up to a... a a little oasis, and he's like, look, here, here's some water. Can I get baptized? Well, if you believe, you may. I believe Jesus is the Christ, the Son of the living God. All right, let's do it. And he goes down into the water, and he baptizes. And he goes on his way rejoicing. Because he followed his conscience. If you seek, you will find. If you ask, you will receive. If you knock, the door will open. That's what Jesus said. And the problem with some people is they're not following their conscience. That's what it means that they're self-condemned. They're condemning themselves by not being honest with themselves. You've talked to them. You've talked to the person that it doesn't matter what you say or what scriptures you read or how reasonable you are. They are not going to listen to to you. They are warped in their thinking and they're self-condemned. And until they want God, what can you do? You can lead a horse to water, but you cannot make that horse drink. And you can lead someone to the Scriptures, but you cannot make them believe it. You just can't make them. All you can do is provide the opportunity. But they have to want it. You see, if you're not true to your conscience, it'll warp your thinking. Now, not just non-Christians, but a Christian. If you're a Christian and you're going to church, you're serving God, but, and then, but you let the devil get his foot in the door, you have this one little hidden sin. You think, well, nobody knows about it. and It's not that big of a deal. And I'm really better than most people. And it's just this one little thing. And God's grace will cover it. And, you know, I'll just let that be there in my secret little hidden sin land. 
and you don't follow your conscience there, it'll start to warp your mind. It'll lead to more compromises and more compromises. And it'll take you down a path you don't want to go to. Like the casting crown song that you've heard, the slow fade. Doesn't happen overnight. A person doesn't just turn away from faith and from God. The devil inches them away. Like the frog in the pot. Slowly turning up the heat until they don't notice that they're away. Like Samson, who inched and inched and inched his way from a God until one day he got up and he thought he'd just shake off the Philistines like he always had, not realizing that the Spirit of God had left him. And it had, and he was weak as any other man, and they shackled him up and gouged his eyes out with hot irons and tied him to a mill and made him push a mill with a horse or a donkey. You and what you say and what you think and what you allow has meaning. For by your words you will be acquitted and by your words you will be condemned. And then a person is contentious and they won't seek peace and truth but they just want to argue they are warped in their mind they're self-condemned they're not following their conscience there's something fleshly in them motivating them you try to talk to them and they're still contentious you talk to them again and they're still argumentative and they do it a third time they're out of here because they're not sincere. Their mind is warped. They're self-condemned. Their conscience is off. There's no fixing them because their heart is hard. And until they repent, they need to stay gone. And you need to understand how it works so that you don't fall prey. I'm telling you, if you want blessing of God in your life, Look at your life and see where you're doing wrong and you know it's wrong and change. That is the first step to God showing you the next step. You're like, I want to get here with God or I want to get here in my service to God or I want to get here. I want this opportunity. Why isn't God giving it to me? Why isn't God leading me to the spouse I want? Why isn't God leading me to the job? Why, isn't God, why am I so held back? Why do I feel like I'm spinning my wheels? Look at your life. And see where you're not following your conscience. And start there. And follow your conscience. What you know you ought to be doing. Live up, Paul said it this way. Live up to what you've already attained and then God will show you more. He's taught you this much and you're not listening to it. Why would he teach you more? Why would he give you the next 20 steps when you won't take the first one? He's not going to give you the next 20 steps when you won't take the first step. You've got to be faithful with a little before he'll put you in charge of much. Follow your conscience. It might be warped. It might be a little off right now. Follow it. You know, the Apostle Paul followed his conscience. His conscience told him he needed to go up to Damascus and kill some Christians. Now that was wrong. His conscience was warped. He was, he was totally wrong. But he followed his conscience. And it led him into an encounter with God. 
God showed him where he was wrong. And because he was a man of conscience, he did what was right. And he went from Saul to Paul because he followed his conscience. Follow your conscience. Let God change it and grow it. Be open to the idea you might be wrong. But until he changes it and shows you different in his word, follow your conscience. Titus 3.12, when I send Artemis to you, or Tacticus, be diligent to come to me at Nicopolis, for I've decided to spend the winter there. Send Zenos, the lawyer, and Apollos on their journey with haste, that they may be lack nothing, and let your people also learn to maintain good works, to meet urgent needs, that they may not be unfruitful. Is it just me, or has he got like a focus on something here? I keep seeing these two words together. It's like the fifth time. Um, who is Artemis? He's a minister who's cooperating with the Apostle Paul, who Paul considered worthy of replacing Titer. Titus. According to later church tradition, he was one of the 70 disciples, a bishop of Lystra, according to Dothelius. I don't know how to say it. Anyway, this is several hundred years after. So uh, maybe true, maybe not, but later church. It's like some, like for, in my opinion, the closer to the first century the church tradition was, the more likely it would be accurate. Maybe that's a wrong assumption. But it seems to me the closer to the time that it would be more accurate. This is a later tradition. We don't have this in early church history, so I don't know if that's true. Um, but he was uh, definitely one of Paul's uh, you know, disciples, one of Paul's preachers that he's trained. And he was somebody that he thought uh, that once Titus was done appointing elders, that Titus could turn the ministry over there. Uh, Tacticus, he was uh, accompanied by Sopatar, son of Phryas from Berea, uh, Aristarchus, Sinaeus from Thessalonica, Gaius and from Derby, Timothy also, and Tychus and Trophimus from the province of Asia. So here he's mentioned for the first time uh, in Acts chapter 20. He's mentioned again in Acts chapter, uh, excuse me, Ephesians chapter 6 verse 21. A dear brother, faithful servant of the Lord, will tell you everything so that you also may know how I am and how I'm doing. Uh, by the way, most likely he was from the church at Ephesus because he's constantly associated with it. Uh, um, in Colossians, he, he, uh, he says he will tell you all the news about me. He's a dear brother, faithful minister, and a fellow servant in the Lord. In 2 Timothy, it says that he sent him to Ephesus. So when he's, we see him in Acts chapter 20 with Paul, he's one of the guys Paul trained. When he writes the book of Ephesians, who sends it? Who takes it to him? This dude. When he writes the book of Colossians, who takes it to him? This dude. When he needs somebody to preach at Ephesus, uh, he tells Timothy he sent uh, he sent uh, this guy there. So we see that uh, again and again, uh, this guy is somebody Paul trusted, that, that Paul used in various ministry capacities and was a companion of Paul. Um, and by the way, he, he may have been the ghostwriter because Paul would use a, um, a scribe. He would dictate and the person would write it down. And so this guy could have been actually the... Uh, transcriber for Ephesians and Colossians. Um, okay, uh, so where is Nicopolis? Okay, so he's saying, I'm going to send these two guys to Crete to take over the ministries in Crete. I need you to come here to me. Where is Nicopolis? Uh, it, well, the city means victory city, and it was um, on the west coast of Greece, 
So across from the heel of the boot in Italy. So think of the Italy and think of the heel of the boot. And then you go across the Aegean Sea uh, to Greece. And that's where it would be. It was a city Augustus Caesar, that's Octavius Augustus, uh, before he was Caesar, uh, built to commemorate his victory over the naval forces of Mark Anthony, which secured his rule in the Battle of Actium. So uh, Julius Caesar uh, is murdered and um, because the Senate wanted to remain a republic and there were some people who said, we don't want to become a dictator and this guy has got too much power and he's trying to become emperor and declare himself a god. Well, we're not going to have that. And so they stab him in the back, right? Uh, the Ides of March, all that. You too, Brute. And, uh, and so he, three guys kind of take over uh, as his military. He had an adopted son, Octavius. Uh, and then he had uh, another relative, uh, I think it was a nephew, which was Mark Anthony, who was kind of like the leader of uh, Palestine area. And uh, he was based in Alexandria, Egypt, so he was the leader of Egypt. And you guys have heard of Mark Anthony and Cleopatra, you know? And uh, supposedly Cleopatra got, um, Octavius and Julius Caesar wanted Mark Anthony to be loyal to them. So they married Mark Anthony off to Octavius's sister. But evidently she wasn't as babelicious as Cleopatra and Cleopatra won him over. And so he starts having an affair with Cleopatra and Cleopatra's like, you know, if you love me, you'd help my son become emperor after Julius Caesar. And so she said that she had a love child with Julius Caesar before he died and she had the son and he should be the next Caesar and he should take over the Roman empire. Well, Octavius wasn't having that. And so he went and he fought. And the forces of Egypt and the forces uh, and part of Rome and forces of basically the Eastern Empire and the Western Empire fought against each other. Big naval battle between Italy and Greece. And a storm came up and shipwrecked a bunch of Mark Anthony ships. And Augustus, uh, Octavius Augustus won. And so he goes back to Rome victorious and they declare him Augustus Caesar. This is all around 31 BC. BC means what? You know, before Christ, right? So 31 years before Jesus is born or so, this battle happens. This guy becomes emperor and he builds this city, Nicopolis, which means victory city, right near the location where Mark Anthony's troops, uh, ships surrendered, where this big battle happened. So he creates victory city. Um, and, and when you read about when Jesus is born, who is emperor when Jesus was born? Augustus Caesar, right? So it was in the, he wasn't dead yet. He was still ruling the empire when Jesus is born. And he sets up uh, after that battle with, it's a hundred years before Rome is in a major war again. It's called the Pax Romana or the hundred years of Roman peace where the emperor's rule was so powerful and so mighty and anybody that started to rebel, he boom, immediately squash him. And that's what, and that's anybody in the, that rebelled, that's why he didn't have the problems. Now in later centuries, they get attacked from all over and the empire falls apart. But this was the golden era of the Roman empire when Jesus was born. He was born right at the height of Roman power. And um, so this guy sets up a city, calls it Victory City. He builds a huge stadium there. You can still, you, get, you Google it. 
Uh, you can see the remnants. It was the largest city in Greece, in the ancient Greece. Over 100,000 people lived in this city. Largest city in Greece in the ancient world. And uh, it, it's unpopulated today. It's just, nobody's there. And um, the, the stadium is still there. The Colosseum that they had things there. But it had a roof over it, but it doesn't anymore. But he used to hold games there. Now the Greeks were known in ancient times for their Olympic games, right? And so sport and games was a big Greek thing. And so every five years, they didn't do it every four years, they did it every five years, they would have the games. And it would be at that location in Greece, in Victory City. And Nicopolis. And they would have these, these games that they would have these athletic sports that they would, right? And so at some point during the end of Paul's ministry, this is after the book of Acts is done and before he's arrested a second time and beheaded in 68 AD by Nero, at some point we think he went to Nicopolis and was there in Nicopolis, you know, and I think that some of his sport illusion maybe that we see in Second Timothy is going to be because of his location there or whatever. But um, basically, it was a city that celebrated the power of the Roman emperor. And why was Paul wanting to go there? Because if you go back and look at Paul's ministry, he just went from major city to major city planting churches. And there probably was not a church in this pagan stronghold. And it was the largest city in Greece. And he's like, hey, let's spend the winter there. <laughs> I'm on my way sailing up to Rome, and I'm not going to have time to make it to Rome, but I'll stop in Nicopolis and let's do some church work there. Because uh, he was about going to places where nobody had planted a church and planting churches. That's his stated purpose. He says that elsewhere. And so why did he go to Nicopolis? I think probably start a new church. And that's why he wants Timothy to come help him. I mean, excuse me, Titus to come help him. Uh, nothing more is known about Zenos, uh, the lawyer, other than is contained in this passage. Um, he was either a Jewish teacher of the law, because they would use that term lawyer for a Jewish teacher of the law, which really wasn't a person who you know, went to court and did law. It was just a person who taught the law of Moses. And they would call him this term for lawyer. Or with Greeks, if you use the term, as a non-Jew, then it would be a person who was an actual lawyer, you know, had a law degree and would go to court. Um, why did Paul want a lawyer? I'm, I'm not sure. Um, I think he was non-Jewish. Why? His name is Zenos, which means son of Zeus. And I'm pretty sure any good respecting Jew was not going to call himself the son of Zeus. Okay? So I'm thinking mom and dad were not Jewish. Okay? Whoever gave him that name, I'm guessing Gentile. Okay? So I don't think he was Jewish and I think he was a lawyer. Why was Paul wanting a lawyer? I think he knew that he might get arrested again uh, and he might need one. So uh, just a guess. Um, who is Apollos? A native of Alexandria, he came from Ephesus. He was learned with a thorough knowledge of the scriptures, but uh, didn't have baptism correct. 
So Aquila and Priscilla had to teach him the way of the Lord more perfectly. That's when we're first introduced to him in Acts. Apollos preached in Achaia. He was a great help to those who the grace had believed. He taught at Corinth, uh, watering the seeds that Paul had planted there. Uh, some became sectarian about that. In fact, they're like, well, I'm a disciple of Apollos. Well, I'm a disciple of Paul. And they argued with each other. And though there was disagreement between the disciples of Paul and Apollos, evidently, in Corinth, there wasn't any between Apollos and Paul. Uh, they worked well together and supported one another. In fact, he was appreciated and supported by Paul. And here at the end of his life, Paul's telling uh, Titus, hey, uh, make sure that Apollos and Zenos have everything they need for their journey. Give them the support that they need and send them on their way. So uh, Paul was making sure that Apollos was financially set to travel uh, on this journey. Okay. And then he told them to maintain a readiness for emergency situations. He said, uh, be ready in these situations to give when needed, when it's an emergency. Be ready. Now, he talked about this in Corinthians chapter 16, verse 2. He said, on the first day of every week, each one of you should set aside a sum of money in keeping with your income. So we're to give proportionally uh, and saving it up so that when I come, no collections will have to be made. So don't go, well, I'm going to, at the end of the year, I'll, I'll give the Lord, um, uh, you know, everything that, uh, the, you know, 10% of my income or whatever. No, no, no. Every week when you go to church, see, they're already going on the first day of the work to, first day of week to church every week. We know that from the book of Acts. And why were they going? To break bread. They came to take the Lord's Supper on the first day of the week. And so here again, we have another example that they're meeting on the first day of the week. And he says, when you come together on the first day of the week, if you made any money that week, give proportionally off of it. Give a portion of it. So you don't, uh, if you've made money, then you should give. And so give your tithe and your offering each week. If you didn't make any money that week, say you're, you only get paid once a month. Say you get paid every two weeks. If you didn't make any money that week, you don't got to worry about giving. But if you made something that week, if you had some income, then you should give proportionally from it. The amount that you've decided to give to God. So uh, that should be happening weekly on the first day of the week. Um, there's some things that, uh, that are commanded to be a part of every week. We're commanded to pray. We're commanded to have apostles' doctrine. We're commanded to fellowship. We're commanded to take the Lord's Supper and we're commanded to give every week. And those things have to happen for church to be church. <laughs> and uh, now we're not commanded to take up an offering on Wednesday night or at a home Bible study or, you know, just because we need to do something spiritual. It's the old... The old story about the guys in the foxhole. They were being attacked by the Japanese in World War II and they thought they might die. And they what should we do? And we should pray. And so it was like, we ought to do something spiritual. And guys, so they took off the helmet and passed around and took up an offering. Uh, you know, that's the way some people are. You know, it's the, there's not the fitting time. You know, it's like, uh, let's do something spiritual. Well, we ought to take the lower top. Or, you know, uh, there's a time and a place for everything. And the time for offering is the first day of the week. Get together the first day of the week and don't, you know, and then save it up. Why did he want to do that? So that when I come, no collection will have to be made. See, we don't have to take up a special offering because we've already been given all along each week proportional to our income and the church has the money in reserve, in the bank, ready to go. And when the need happens, boom, we can meet the need because we've been given every week. 
That's Paul's instruction. And that is basically what Paul's saying here, is be ready to give to people. Don't be holding your money back. Proactively prepare for when the need arises. Proactively be ready to spend. And by the way, if your church has got thousands of dollars in the bank, and you say, we're waiting on a need, let me know. I know plenty of places in the kingdom that need money. And uh, you know, you want to fund me? Hey, that'll be great. I'll, I'm, look, I'm going to be looking for that here pretty soon because I want to move to a traveling ministry eventually <clears throat> and travel around the country and do around the country what I'm doing for you guys here regularly. I want to go on the road with this show. You got, some, you got money you want to spend? Let me know. And there's a million other good causes, missions and ides, things that are more important than me that need done in the kingdom. Um, but we need to be taking up money so that the church has it in reserve to give to needs, to immediately be able to meet needs. Ephesians, I always like what Ed Bowsman said. Uh, Praise the Lord and pass the ammunition. Uh, That was was his way of asking for money, as he would say, pass the ammunition. Uh, Ephesians 4.28. Let the thief no longer steal, but rather let him labor, doing honest work with his own hands, so he may have something to share with anyone in need. Did you realize that one of the reasons that we work is to help people? If I, if I got money tomorrow and I was set up for life and I never had to work again to, to meet my needs, I'd still work. And I'd take all the money that I made and I'd give it away. Um, it, it, you, your needs, you said, well, my needs are met. Well, you can still do something with your hands. You can do something little, make a little extra money and give it away. If you don't need it, if you're set for life, if you retired from your job because you don't got to work, that's fine. But do something. Do something. I remember I was getting my hair cut once by this guy who was 100 years old. And I never went back to him because he should have retired. Um, but uh, I said, what, what made you? He's like, he's over there. And uh, I'm in Wabash, Indiana. And I said, I said, what makes you keep? He was like 100 years old and he's still cutting hair. Like, what made you keep cutting hair this long? He'd been cutting hair for like 60 years. And he's like, he's like, well, I noticed all my friends when they retired, they retired and a year or two later, they dropped dead. And he says, I just kind of figure the, the man upstairs, when he sees you're not doing nothing anymore, he takes you home. <laughs> he said, I want to stick around for a while. <laughs> he said, oh, whoa. And uh, so it wasn't the best haircut I ever got, but I appreciated his spunk. And... Uh, and I kind of agree with that. You are, you are made to work. And maybe you don't work like you used to. Maybe you don't make as much as you used to. But be doing something to build up the kingdom of heaven. And if you're not the one gifted with the ability to teach, or, and if you don't have anything you can work with your hands to help out your local congregation or someone else, but, but surely there's something you can do uh, to, to bless the kingdom. Even if it's not financially. There's something you can be doing. But if you can earn some money, you have, you know, one of the reasons we work is not just to meet our needs, but so that we have something to share with them. There's people in need. There's missionaries who need your help. There are, there are hungry people. There are, there are people in need in this world. And they need your, they need your help. So one of the reasons you should work and, and work diligently uh, is so you got extra to give to extra people. That's, that's what, and we maintain that readiness to, to do good works. My battery is low. That's not a good sign. Is it? It is. Pastime. 
Okay, we will quit there then.